It's kind of amazing how much work has changed in the past few hundred years, and yet how slow the human brain is to evolve. And when you really think about it, it's no surprise that so many of us are struggling so much with the rapid change and feeling disconnected and disengaged. So today's guest is going to help us better understand how we can use the insights around brain evolution to help us thrive at work. But first, a warm welcome to Taya I and Don B and Karen R to the Modern Manager community. Now today's guest is Dr. Gabriella Rosen Kellerman. Gabriella is an author, entrepreneur, executive, and startup advisor trained as an MD. She served as Chief Innovation Officer and Chief Product Officer at BetterUp, as well as founding CEO of LifeLink. Her expertise spans the future of work, behavior change, leadership, well-being, productivity, and behavioral health. She is also the co-author, along with Martin Seligman, of the book Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work, Now and in an Uncertain Future. Gabriella and I talk about how the human brain has developed over thousands of years and how it's been designed to help or hinder us in the current work environment. We do a deep dive on a few of the critical skills needed to thrive and how we can cultivate these in ourselves and others. Now here's the conversation. Are you a manager, boss, or team leader who aspires to level up and unleash your team's full potential? You're listening to the Modern Manager Podcast, and I'm your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Each week, I explore effective strategies and provide actionable insights that supercharge your management abilities, optimize team performance, and foster a healthy workplace culture. Become a rockstar manager and help your team thrive at themodernmanager.com slash more. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gabriella. I'm Super excited to talk to you, partly because when I learned about your work, and I was like, this is so perfect for my audience. And when I had a collaboration, you actually said yes, which is very exciting to me. And I just finished your book, which was fabulous. And I can't wait for you to talk about some of the concepts from your research and your work and share it with me and so I can get a little more from you and share it with my listeners today. So thanks for coming on. No, thanks for having me. And I'm so glad your podcast exists. It's so needed. It's such an urgent topic. So I'm I'm particularly excited to be able to speak to the manager-specific angle of my work and my research. Let's start with the brain <laughs> and this thing that has been developing over thousands and thousands and thousands of years and how it is evolved to this point and and what is it doing for us? How is it helping us given that evolution and how might it be hindering us given that evolution? Yeah, just a small question to get us started. <laughs> um, so I'll answer it through the lens of the world of work um, and, you know, pretty high level, but we can go deeper. So uh, arguably it's been millions of years of evolution to develop this like magnificent thing sitting in our skulls. And the world of work that it evolved in that we know best is the hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And, you know, there are variations on that. Fishers, there's some agriculture maybe mixed in earlier than we originally thought. But basically, where we're living in nature, we're living in small tribes of 50, 100 people. That was our our people. Um, Everyone else was a stranger, a potential threat. We spent our time doing a mix of activities. Some days we're gathering, some days we're hunting, mix of childcare, and there's there was more fluidity and in, in gender roles than we originally thought. But a lot of room for working collectively in units with high trust, working um, creatively. So over the course of those millions of years, and particularly uh, the last twenty thousand years. 
innovation, which is a native human capability that we all have, creativity rather, um, is is what let us actually innovate out of that world of work. So innovation was a big part of making our lives easier and easier, of out-competing other human species. And lo and behold, you know, we got so innovative that suddenly that wasn't our world of work anymore. So the world that we were really optimized to be uh, be, be productive in was no longer the one that we live in. And now we suddenly have agriculture, which is a very different way of life. There's a lot more planning. And with that comes a worry and fear. There's also a lot more disease and these like very concentrated human settlements, which brought up all kinds of new concerns for us. From there, things started to industrialize, the factory way of life, totally different skill set. Now we have a, you know, a, a much more hierarchical set of folks we're working with, people we've never met before. We just showed up in this big city to work in a factory and we're spending long hours doing manual labor. There's not really any room for creativity anymore. And now today we have this totally different world of work, which of course is, you know, what we're we're mainly here to talk about. But some of those native capabilities from the hunter-gatherer lifestyle still make sense today. Others we we have to develop, you know, that that weren't relevant then but are today. Um, and some things like creativity were relevant then, fell out of use, and are coming back. So that today's world of work is a chance to kind of reconnect with it. And so what we try to do is help elucidate what are the key skills we need today, um, how do we build them to the extent that we need to build them uh, you know, in in ways that we we haven't been maybe even our whole lives. How do we supplement them to the extent that we have them, but they haven't really been adapted for this world of work? And then, what are the ways that there's a mismatch here where we need to overcome some of that? For example, this idea that the fifty or one hundred people those are our people, and therefore everyone else is not our people. That's really detrimental to trying to build trust and collaboration in the workplace today. So how do we overcome that to be able to trust people who we just natively process as different than us? And and we have to overcome that and reprocess them effectively so that we can get to those levels of of wonderful collaboration and bring out the best in, in our teams. You know, I feel like we could go into so many different directions with this, but maybe we should just start with those five skills or capabilities that feel really important for success in today's modern world. And maybe as you're going through each of those, can you relate it back to, is this something that we're kind of born into, right? Historically, we've been prepped for this Mm -hmm. kind of work. Is this something that is kind of going against our nature? Or is this something that fell out of fashion and we're now trying to bring back and kind of touch on, on how the brain is either kind of naturally ready to help us do this work or kind of getting into our way? My book, Tomorrow Mind, goes through these five skills. Um... The five have emerged from six years of research through BetterUp Labs in partnership with Marty Seligman, who's my co-author, in partnership with many other leading behavioral scientists. So it represents the work of a whole lot of really smart people thinking about what do we need to thrive at work today and a lot of research and and bodies of study on each of these five skills. Um, The acronym is PRISM for the five, just to help remember them. So I'll go in order of the acronym. The P is for prospection. This is the ability to imagine and plan for the future. Um, And my co-author in uh, about 10 years ago wrote a book called Homo Prospectus, arguing that prospection is one of the defining capabilities of our species. So that answers your question about, (laughs) has this always, you know, been, it has been something, it was something that was 
um, especially advantageous in, in agriculture, actually, in allowing us to become agriculturalists and succeed as farmers. In today's world of work, um, it is extremely important, but in, in a different way than in the past. So we are operating with so much uncertainty all the time. That prospection is really about seeing a probabilistic array of possibilities. Um, and that array is much greater. It's much vaster. It's much more diverse than ever before because of all of these inputs, you know, billions and billions of inputs from around the world at any given time that are influencing what might happen. What are these black swan events that could pop up that we need to keep in our peripheral vision? So prospection is a, a native capability that we need to now exercise at like a higher level as almost a superpower than we have before in order to restore a sense of agency in this very uncertain world of work. The R is resilience, and this is our ability to get through change without harm. Now, in the one sense, this is a, a deeply human capability. On the other sense, what it looks like today, again, is more extreme, similar to prospection. So, you know, we're, we're facing these challenges that maybe for our grandparents' generation, it was the kind of challenge you'd face once in your career. And these are happening maybe every five years. We can all expect to have to change not just roles, but jobs and industries multiple times over the course of our careers, just because that's how quickly the technology and the world around us is changing. So that's really, really big. And to be resilient through that, um, it's, it's again, kind of a next level. Um, this is also part of how we manage a part of our psychology that is somewhat at a mismatch with our reality today, and that's how we natively respond to change. So it used to be that big changes were potentially, um, we needed to process them almost first and foremost as threat, and so would trigger this fight or flight response. And if we have a lot of change around us and we're processing it through fear, then that leads to chronic stress and then all the, all of the bad things that come from that. Whereas today, we all of this change is not necessarily bad, and much of it, if we're in the right mindset, we can turn it into opportunity. So becoming resilient requires responding differently to change, training ourselves through things like emotional regulation techniques, through building cognitive agility to have a, a layer of resilience that is really adept in the midst of constant change. Um, we also really want to encourage people to think about resilience at its extreme as a potential for growth, right? For this idea of anti-fragility that we can get so good at resilience that we welcome challenge and change because it's an opportunity for us to grow stronger. It's mm -hmm. not just about getting through it. It's actually a, a chance for growth. So that's PR. The I in PRISM is innovation. This is a native capability that fell out of use that's now back, and we really need it today. Everyone, we need everyone on our teams, particularly those on the front lines at the edges of the business to be innovative in the face of novel challenges. As leaders, we can do a tremendous amount to inspire that and nurture it and cultivate it for the people on our team. But because we've had a, a culture for a few hundred years that really didn't prioritize creativity at work for most people, there are some assumptions we need to overcome. There's some self-image challenges. Um, there's ways of working that run counter to innovation. So we need to free ourselves up to be at our most innovative by countering some of those trends that have come to us historically. The S is social connection. In particular, we have this idea of rapid rapport. As I mentioned, you know, we're, we process pretty much everyone we work with as an, a them rather than an us. 
And when we process someone as a them, we don't work as well together. We don't serve our customers as well. So we need to train our brains to get them to an us. And so that is a mismatch. It also, though, like there is a way of interacting with one another through the lens of an us that's beautiful and efficient and creative. And, you know, we get all of those wonderful physical and psychological and business benefits. But the need to be able to shift more quickly for, to reprocess from one to the other is is novel. The last, the M, is mattering. And so this is a, a, a need to feel that our efforts matter. It's also a major manager skill today to be able to narrate mattering, to be able to help your teams understand why their efforts matter, particularly when we have to shift gears really quickly from one thing to another. And that last layer of shifting gears is new. The need to feel that things matter is not new, but the the threat to mattering from our world of work is new. So as a, a quick example, you know, imagine you've been leading a team and many people listening probably been in this exact situation. And for nine months, that team's been grinding on a particular initiative. And then something changes in the market, something changes in the org structure. And all of a sudden, you have to put that aside and work on something totally different. All those people working on this for nine months are looking to you to say, well, why did it even matter that I did that? And why is it going to matter that this next thing you're asking me to do, that I go ahead and and do that? And without that, we really can't even get out of bed in the morning uh, to show up to do the work, right? So a huge skill for managers is to be able to bridge that uh, mattering gap. Exactly what you just said about mattering. It feels like something that managers are tasked with a lot of like work needs to be purposeful and people need to have, you know, be passionate about their job. And it's all about finding your calling. And that's a big, a big ask for most managers to like provide so much on a personal, what feels very personal to people. But I think what you're saying is that there is a component of that that managers can take responsibility for. And that is the mattering piece. Can you talk a little bit more about how we can do that, both under these kind of unfortunate situations where a pile of work gets shifted and suddenly we're like, why did that matter? But also just on the Um, day-to-day of like, how do we help our team members really feel like they matter and their work and their contributions matter? Yeah, totally. So there, there is this broader conversation about meaningful work and purposeful work. And that's a very hard thing for a manager to take action on. Part of why we've gravitated toward mattering is it's much more concrete. Now, sometimes it leads you into meaning and purpose, and it leads someone on your team to share with you some deep source of meaning they get from the work. Like, you don't need to shy away from that. But the idea of mattering is that at, at a very minimal level, as managers, we need to be able to explain what is the point of this work and what is the point of it, even if and especially if we have to stop it and walk away from it. So one of the tools that we've created and we we use it at BetterUp and we have it in the book and explain how to use it is what's called the mattering map. Essentially, it's a, a map for the individual of how their work matters to the organization and the different ways that it matters. And it starts with the ways that that individual embodies the values of the organization, right? So it it shows things that are pretty deep about who you are and how you as a manager see that person showing up, embodying those values. You choose which values you're going to celebrate. You then give examples of how they, they are showing up. You can get quotes from other people in the organization. The second uh, layer is about the the teams and the individuals that they have helped. So it's service, right? It's who is who's to whom does your work matter? And what you want to do there is talk about two or three key people or teams 
that their work has really made a difference to who they may not particularly valuable if they're not necessarily aware of it. And the reason is, first of all, it expands their sense of the purpose beyond what they have awareness of. It also really reinforces, in a way, your credibility as a manager because you're able to show them that you really see and understand how all these pieces of the organization fit together and that when you make a decision and ask them to do X, in your mind, you can see all of these ripple effects that may not be visible to them. You're going to help them understand it to the best of your ability, but it helps them continue to believe that you make good choices about where their work should go. That sort of a subtle benefit of choosing teams, individuals to whom their work matters that they may not be aware of. And then the, kind of the outermost layer of mattering is really about the business metrics. It's, um, it's you know, how, how did that initiative ladder up to improving customer churn or improving member retention or, you know, revenue um, booking and uh, whatever those those metrics might be. And it's okay if you can't, you know, tell the step-by-step perfect story from one to the other, but to be able to to narrate how this chain of actions that they were part of is leading to those business metrics, that's what it's what it's really all about. And so you want to do this with the people on your team at whatever frequency you can manage, um, but have a conversation that's really all about this. It's appreciation. It's quotes. Uh, again, the book goes through in detail more about how to do this, but dedicate time to show this person that you see them, that you see the impact of their work, that that impact really exists, and that include these quotes from others so that they know that there are other human beings thinking about them and their work and why it's important that they're part of the company. I love this approach. And I love it in the sense that it could be just like we do performance reviews that kind of, you know, once a year in this like old school kind of way of like, we're going to look at your whole year Right? And to use that opportunity, not just to like look at what you accomplished, but to connect it, as you're saying, to something so much bigger. And I do recommend, by the way, since you mentioned that, decoupling it from a performance conversation. Oh. So have this just about mattering, you know, devote 20 minutes to this conversation. Maybe it's once a quarter, maybe it's twice a year if you can't manage once a quarter. But what that does is it takes off the the feeling from the other person of the other shoes about to drop. Mm. Um, it also reinforces this idea that whether we're a star performer or a medium performer, assuming we're keeping enough, keeping up with our responsibilities enough to keep our job, we all deserve to feel that our work matters, and we all deserve to feel that humanity and connection with our manager. So it just creates a separate space to do that, um, and it doesn't mean you can't have constructive conversations about where there's gaps. If you do have someone you're like about to let go, maybe don't have the mattering conversation, <laughs> you know, maybe like skip it that quarter. But short of that, if it's someone you're investing in, someone you believe in, don't don't miss out on that opportunity to show them you believe in them, to help give them, restore their faith that you know what the heck you're doing, even though you're asking them to change course all the time and to really feel seen by the organization. That's great. I love that. Thank you. And thank you for correcting me. I was like, oh, no. I mean, it was a great, that's where most people's minds go. So thank you for ma- uh, making me aware that I failed to make that point about the decoupling. <laughs> so important. I feel like the other piece of mattering that it gets into like the way that we show appreciation, right? That we can do this both in this kind of concentrated 20 minute, let's sit down, but also in the everyday when we say like, thank you for, you know, contributing to that document, right? Like we can use that as an opportunity to connect it to something more. 
and beyond just saying a nice thank you, but to like, thank you for contributing those ideas that helped XYZ happen, right? Like those little tiny things that can push it um, from just like a nice appreciation to like connecting it to that deeper level. Totally. And people need that why more than ever. Um, You know, especially if we're asking them to do more, to make more decisions on their own, to have greater autonomy because they're, again, facing novel situations. Like they need the bigger picture of the North Star as the why that they can march toward rather than these smaller tactics, you know? It's part of why actually rather than manager, like I think we need a different word than manager, to Mm -hmm. be honest, today, right? It's not really managing. It's more like coaching, um, but coach has its own connotations. And there's something about a coachager, which is a terrible word, but that we're enabling people with skills um, because they're out doing things faster than we know it's happening. So it's not really about management anymore in, in that reality. And the why it fuels them, it gives them a lot of clarity. You now it lets us get to those outcomes. And we don't really know what tactics they should take because we're not in it with them in, the, in every single moment. So maybe let's talk about this innovation piece. And because that feels something very alive, I think, for managers too. And the self-ideas of I'm not a creative person or my job is in a creative role or, you know, how much creativity is really allowed, how much innovation experimentation is really allowed in this work because failure or because bureaucracy or because all of those things. What advice do you have for managers around how to really support and kind of get people into the mindset of creativity, of innovation, since that is another important skill and really alive in the workplace today. Here's a first piece of it. As I said, a lot of people don't think of themselves as creative. The ability to feel confident in ourselves as creative is called creative self-efficacy. And it actually predicts the quality of our creative output. So people who have a higher degree of self-confidence as creatives and self-efficacy and self-confidence are not the same thing. Self-efficacy is more like I've witnessed myself be successful as a creative. So it's well-founded. People who who don't have that are already at a disadvantage in terms of their ability to contribute what you as their manager need from them. So one of the best things we can do as managers, um, managers, teachers, parents are extremely influential in building up that creative self-efficacy for individuals. And so the way to do it is to notice it and to name it and to name it as creative and, and positively recognize mm-hmm. it. So. One of the definitions of creative that psychologists like is something that meets three conditions. It's novel, it's surprising, and it's useful. So if you see someone contribute in a way that's novel, surprising, and useful, and it could be very small, it could be a novel, useful, surprising way to end a customer conversation that just hits just the right note. It was unexpected, but it really tied things together. That's creative. So if you can notice that and you can call it out for that individual, you are then helping them build up their creative self-efficacy, which will help them generate more creative outputs in the future. So that's one piece. Another thing that we spend a lot of time on in the book, which I think is really fun to do as a team too, is we've identified four different types of creativity, four different ways of thinking divergently about a problem. And we have strengths and proclivities within those four. So the four are splitting, like seeing that one thing that everyone else thinks is the same thing is actually better split into two. That might happen with a product line that we differentiate by a customer. 
that could be a, a, an example of splitting. Um, integration is kind of the opposite of splitting. So could be seeing that two parallel trends are actually part of some broader unified force that we could take on as, as one thing. There's something called figure ground reversal, which is where we realize that the problem is much better solved by looking at the background rather than the foreground of a problem. And then what there's what we call distal, which is imagining something very, very far from the here and now, uh, so far from the here and now that it's actually kind of hard to explain. So within your team, you'll have some people good at one and some people good at another. When you're working on a team problem, it's great to make sure you have all four quadrants covered. So mm. have you come up with a distal solution as a possibility? Have you come up with the figure ground reversal? If you don't have someone on your team who's great at one of those, borrow someone from another team just to like fill in the quadrant, start to generate that self-awareness as a team of your creative strengths. Another one that's just fun to do, and it also really helps the team develop a creative identity. I'm wondering on that front, if you have any stories or examples from yourself or your clients where you've kind of done that creative thinking and the idea, the idea, the solution that came was one that maybe was less expected than uh, maybe less obvious because you actually were able to tap into those four different types of creativity. I will tell you one uh, one story that came up with a, a particular government agency that I was I was able to do some work with on on creativity. This was uh, a, a case where um, there was they needed to design a new environment for uh, for a, uh, a particular team. Um, there was an approach that they put into place to design that environment that was really about giving access to people in that environment to sunlight. That was sort of the the governing principle. Now, in coming up with that, they had looked at a few different possibilities, and it was all about okay, there's a there's a, a user need. We're going to go in and position everything around that user need. What they failed to do, though, was think about the ways that the users might want to self-determine, which was a figure ground reversal. But fortunately, the way they had designed the office, things were modular. And so what happened within just a matter of weeks after moving people into this new space was that everyone started moving things around in a completely different but organic arrangement of the furniture. It did have to do with access to sunlight, but in a totally different way than they thought. And so I think, you know, what what they they might have done that intentionally to begin with was create it with a more of a, a modular choose your own adventure approach to the furniture had they thought that way to begin with in retrospect they saw that they hadn't thought about it from that figure ground reversal angle but fortunately you know it was a, it was serendipitous that their design allowed for it anyway and and they were able to kind of learn from the user when it comes to helping our colleagues Kind of embrace some of these skills, right? Like it, in some ways, it's easier for us to learn about them and then like, you know, think about how we can create different kinds of environments or we can use different kinds of tools. But if we have a team member who's really struggling with one of these five skills, and I know we only have time to dig into too deeply. Is there a way that you recommend we approach a conversation with them about, hey, you really, you know, you are a creative person and like, let's tap into more of that. Or you, you, you can, you know, use your prospective skills more. Like let's let's lean into that so that we can kind of help them 
grow and develop and strengthen these skills. The specifics of what to work with them on, you can find, you know, specific interventions, exercise like the mattering map in the book. But one way I'll answer it at a more general level um, for your question that speaks to all five of the skills is that um, I think sometimes we don't want to have these conversations because they might feel a little personal. Um, and so how do we open the door to have something that feels deeper? And here's where I think, again, coaching skills are really useful to opening that up. And so two pieces of, of what it is to embody coaching as a manager that I'll emphasize that can be useful. The first is asking powerful questions. So you want to think really carefully about what question you're going to ask to open that up and how you're going to do it and what words you're going to use. For example, the word why can put people on the defensive. So maybe don't use a, a why word. It can be a word that's about how do you think about that, right? The, the, a, a question that's going to make them talk more is going to be in, in your favor. And then the second piece is what's called active listening. So really paying attention to what they're saying, really trying to feel to empathize in the moment. That'll help you get to some good follow-up questions. It'll help you repeat back what they're saying in ways that feel meaningful and empathetic. This is sort of how you even get into the held space with them to have these conversations, again, through these powerful questions and the active listening. And keep in mind, any conversation can become a coaching conversation if you apply the right tools to it. So you have to choose, okay, I want this to be more of a coaching feel. I want to open up space to have them do more of the talking with the right questions. And then I'm really going to listen, really try to understand see how we both can understand this person better, how they can come to their own insights and epiphanies just through me asking and listening. I love approaching this as they have their answers. They have the answers. They just need a little support to find them. And we can open that door for them or we can try. Totally. All right. We are unfortunately at the end of our time together. So Gabriella, can you tell us about a great manager that you worked for and what made this person such a fantastic boss? Yeah. So uh, a wonderful manager um, of mine uh, continues to be a mentor to me today. She was someone who saw in me very early on the potential to to become a leader, the potential to um, do things that I didn't even believe in myself that I could do. Um, I think she was not shy about expressing that that faith. She gave me a lot of challenges um, and celebrated where you know I was making progress on those, and then gave me really helpful input in places I wasn't. Um, she helped me learn to to advocate for myself, and she also was just really thoughtful around special uh, opportunities for recognition. Um, and uh, and you know as as one. Example, uh, I was out for a birthday dinner with my husband. I have, must have mentioned to her at some point that I was going to this restaurant at this place in time for my birthday. And we sit down at the table and there's just a beautiful bottle of champagne there with a note from her saying, thank you for your hard work. And I hope you have a wonderful celebration. And just showed me like she was really thinking about me and thinking about how to celebrate me in a way that was in the flow of my life and would be really meaningful to me. And it made the evening so much more special because, you know, it was exactly, you know, what, what we would have wanted to have if you could wave a magic wand. So I think it was like a tremendous amount of empathy, time, um, effort. I feel she really invested in me and helped me kind of become the person that I didn't even know I, I could she sounds amazing. And she what is. a great, what a great tip for every other manager out there. 
Um, amazing. All right. And where can people learn more about you, get a copy of your book, Tomorrow Mind, and all that jazz? Yeah. So I have a website, uh, GabriellaRosenKellerman.com or GabriellaKellerman.com, same website. And uh, the book's Tomorrow Mind, and it's available at any major bookseller. Lots of links on my website, too. Fabulous. Thank you so much again. I really enjoyed to learn from you. Thanks so much. Gabriella is providing a signed copy of her book, Tomorrow Mind, Thriving at Work Now and in an Uncertain Future, to two members of the Modern Manager community. Members, if you are interested, you must enter the drawing no later than September 1st. And don't forget that Thomas Curran is giving away five copies of his book, The Perfection Trap, which you need to indicate your interest by August 25th. And Emily Field is giving away five copies of her book, Power to the Middle, Why Managers Hold the Keys to the Future of Work, which you have to enter by August 18th. So there are a lot of good book giveaways for members, along with many other amazing guest bonuses like discounts and worksheets from past guests that are always available. To become a member and be eligible for all of these book giveaways and extended interviews via our private podcast feed, go to themodernmanager.com slash more, M-O-R-E. All the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox when you subscribe to my newsletter. Find that at themodernmanager.com. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.